So anyway, I would like to invite Dr. Nick Rogers uh, from Mayo Clinic Scottsdale. Please help me welcome him. Well, thank you very much, Greg, and thank you very much for the opportunity to return to the SDPA for your annual meeting. And I'm so happy that you're growing so well that you're going to have to have a summer meeting also. That shows great progress. Embrace oral dermatology. That's, that's my mantra. <clears throat> I came by it naturally. I'm the son and grandson of a dentist. But I went into medicine, so my guilt always followed me. <laughs> and uh, I got interested in the immunology of uh, oral diseases, which I'll show you a little bit about later on, and that pulled me into oral dermatology. So today our topics are acute oral ulcers and then canker sores, which is the most common cause of acute oral ulcers. I have no disclosures of financial relationships, but I will be talking a lot about off-label use of medications. Greetings from Rochester, Minnesota. I'm going back next week to work. The temperature is in the 50s and 60s. Every time I come to town, it rains or snows, and they blame me for it. And I say, how can you do that? I come from the Valley of the Sun. But all of our patients have given us permission to use their images uh, in, for educational purposes. So, acute oral ulcers. This is a common problem. If any of you are seeing patients in urgent situations or you're the one who sees urgent patients in your practice, then you may be called upon to see patients with acute oral ulcers. So we're going to define these as those that are short-lived, that come and go, that don't come and stay and stay and stay. That's an entirely different topic of chronic oral ulcers. And the first question you ask after they open their mouth for you to look at their acute oral ulcers is, have you ever had these before? So this is the key question for you to decode acute oral ulcers. And there are only four conditions which cause acute uh, recurrent episodes of oral ulcers. And they are trauma, canker sores, an intraoral type of herpes simplex virus infection, and a very rare disease. So let's look at these four types of acute recurrent oral ulcers. Trauma, canker sores, recurrent herpes simplex virus stomatitis, and cyclic neutropenia. You'll probably get this one. Your patient probably got this one. Dental appliances, an oval lesion, looks like a canker sore on the labial mucosa. Here's a ulcer on the right portion of the tongue. You can see a little bit of hyperkeratosis there. This is the tooth that is impacting the tongue, and your dentist can help the patient sort out this problem. A tooth that is not opposed properly with the tooth above it rasping along the lateral border of the tongue. So, trauma. Canker sores, and we'll spend a good deal of time today talking about this because this is far and away the most common cause of recurrent acute oral ulcers. Usually young persons, one to two, three, four lesions, one, two, three, four times a year, lasting a few days, lots of pain, then gets better, nothing in between, and we'll talk more about that. Here are apathy at the commissure of the lips, two that have come together, become confluent, they're usually long, round to oval, with an erythematous halo. Here's a deep lesion in the labial buccal mucosa. The third recurrent acute oral ulcer is recurrent intraoral herpes simplex virus stomatitis. This is the same thing as cold sores or fever blisters, only it occurs only in the mouth, not on the lips. And it occurs just like canker sores, recurrent episodes, one, two, three, four lesions, one, two, three, four times a year. So quite confusing to patients who don't discriminate this from canker sores. But this condition occurs only in the masticatory mucosa, the mucosa that you use to chew. 
so it's more harshly keratinized, it's tougher and thicker, and that's the mandible, the maxilla, and the hard palate. So here are lesions on a torus palatinus, a bony a part of the hard palate, grouped papulovesicles. Here are additional lesions on the palate. You can see the grouped lesions. And then on the palate, when they become confluent, covered by a fiber membranous slough and a large uh, plaque of ulcers. So recurrent intraoral herpes simplex virus stomatitis, just like fever blisters or cold sores on the lips, only occurring in the mouth and only on masticatory mucosa. Now the treatment for this would be the same as you might treat somebody for fever blisters or cold sores. And the final one is cyclic neutropenia. This is the type of question you might see in a board examination. I've practiced dermatology for 38 years. I've been interested in oral dermatology for more than 38 years, and I've yet to see a patient with this rare disease. This is one of those cyclic period diseases which occurs in a rhythmic fashion every so many days, outbreak of oral ulcers, and this is because they've lost their polymorphonuclear leukocytes, so their mouth is acting like someone who's being induced for leukemia with lots of oral sores. And this is a, a defect of T-cells. Where you have lesions both on the soft oral tissue where you would have canker sores and the masticatory mucosa, where you would have recurrent intraoral herpes simplex virus stomatitis. So, acute oral ulcers presenting to you, your question is, have you had these before? And then work through these four things, trauma, canker sores, recurrent intraoral herpes simplex virus stomatitis, and cyclic neutropenia. The patient's mother will tell you that their child has cyclic neutropenia because they'll be coming in with a diary and they'll know that every 17 days this happens to my child. So that won't be hard. Trauma won't be hard. You'll have to think about masticatory mucosa and know that. And then you will have, by default, the most common canker sores. Sometimes it gets cold in Minnesota and uh, we get our weather from Canada, the Alberta Clipper, there's no water in that air, so it's perfectly clear, and the sky is beautifully blue, and it's cold. One-time episodes. This patient could say to you, no, I've never had anything like this before. Still think about trauma, and then reactive conditions of the mouth, drug reactions in the mouth, erythema multiforme, which is a reactive condition, and then infections. So trauma... This is a one-time event. The uh, drill got away from the dentist. Ooh, ow. Stomatitis medicamentosa. These are drug reactions involving the mouth. Some drugs not only can cause rashes, but they can also cause stomatitis. And so here's a patient with a stomatitis from a drug we were using to treat psoriasis. Look at the fingernails. And you can see this is a patient with psoriasis. And this was the progenitor of methotrexate called aminopterin, used many years ago, of course, in a trial, but too much of it, caused a drug reaction of the mouth. Erythema multiforme, redness in many colors, erythema edema swelling, and then subepithelial blisters. So these are quite different than the discrete, nicely set-in lesions of canker sores or of infectious diseases. They're diffuse across the mucosal surface. And so if the lesion you're looking at appears diffuse, think erythema multiforme. Bacterial infections is something you should think about in the first time episode of acute oral ulcers. Primary, secondary, and tertiary syphilis are possibilities. And the condition of ANUG, and you can see why we call this ANUG, because otherwise you'd have to say acute necrotizing ulcerative gingivostomatitis. But this too occurs in young patients like canker sores and fever blisters, and they have the acute onset of pain of their gums with bleeding and ulceration. They'll also have some systemic signs and symptoms, so when you see them, they'll appear ill. The, this affects that same tissue we were talking about, the masticatory mucosa, the gums, and the interdental papillae, that little V between the teeth, and that will become necrotic. 
in the World War I. This was known as trench mouth. Soldiers were unable to care for their oral hygiene and would get these infections of the gingival tissue from low-grade gingivitis becoming periodontal necrotic ulcers. So here we see a patient with early ANUG. You see erythema edema, a little plaque on the surface of the teeth, but boggy interdental papillae. Later on, this moves rapidly and it's progressive to necrosis. And uh, this patient will need uh, curatage to remove this tissue, hydrogen peroxide mouthwashes, and then antibiotic therapy to control the infection. Metronidazole would be the drug of choice and manage this patient with a periodontist or a dentist. Viral infections are the most common cause of infectious acute oral ulcers. And there's a whole family of viral infections. And viral infections, uh, we'll review those quickly now. You've heard the word exanthem. That's the rash that occurs with measles, mumps, or chicken pox, or in childhood infectious diseases. And that means literally bursting forth or flowering. So the rash bursts forth from the skin. And that's an exanthem. In the mouth, it's an enanthem. So that means literally flowering within. And so we'll talk about the enanthems that occur with viral diseases affecting the acute oral ulcers and the oral mucosa. And we'll look specifically at three of those, the common ones, acute herpetic gingivostomatitis, herpes zoster, and hand, foot, and mouth disease. These are diseases which uh, cause an intraepithelial vesiculation with multinucleated giant cells, which you can see on zinc preparation, or you can have a positive culture or PCR report. So acute herpetic gingivostomatitis. Now we're all born without memory of the herpes simplex virus. At some point in our life, we acquire memory, we're exposed, our body is in a sense vaccinated, so we're immunologically now sophisticated against the virus. Some of us, upon first exposure, have acute herpetic gingivostomatitis. And uh, most of us have this from HSV-1, but some from HSV-2. It's more common in children. It may be very mild, but some people have a severe uh, reactive process. These are the gingivae of a patient with acute herpetic gingivostomatitis. And you're saying, Dr. Rogers, that looks exactly like ANUG. And you're right. This is the early stages, and so you see erythema and edema of the interdental papillae and uh, some uh, little plaque on the teeth. But this one then goes on to evolve into acute herpetic gingivostomatitis. So the mouth tissues, the soft oral tissues, are also involved. Here's lesions on the tongue. Here it is on the soft palate extending down into the fauces, grouped papulovesicles, typical group lesions of a herpes virus infection. Acute, painful, troublesome lesions, eventually spreading, becoming confluent, involving large areas of tissue. The stomatitis element of acute herpetic gingivostomatitis. Now, in patients who have a mild infection, this is self-limited in a two or three weeks. But in some patients, they have a more severe infection, and we want to do something more than just support them. And so we would treat them with an antiviral antibiotic. And uh, this could be acyclovir or any of its congeners, famcyclovir, valacyclovir. Very effective at stopping the progression of the disease, shortening the course of the illness in this patient who's otherwise suffering miserably. And these patients occasionally require uh, intravenous uh, feeding because of dehydration and, and because it's difficult for them to swallow. So acute herpetic gingivostomatitis may be the cause of an acute viral oral ulcer. The second herpes virus is that of the varicella zoster virus, and that causes herpes zoster. Now, how does that relate to the mouth and the head and neck? The first the division of the trigeminal nerve affects the eye and the upper face. The second and third divisions of the trigeminal nerve will, may affect the tongue and the oral cavity. So the sudden onset 
of unilateral, unilateral, because this is zoster, oral or dental pain, lesions in the distribution of the second and third division of the trigeminal nerve, and uh, this will be treated also by acyclovir or similar antibiotics. So this is a patient who had come to Mayo Clinic because his wife was having surgery, developed acute oral pain, was seen by oral surgeons two days before we took this photograph. They recognized immediately unilateral papulovesicles on masticatory mucosa, gave me a call, I came down to the dental apartment, saw the patient, started them on acyclovir, saw him back in follow-up, this is two days later, with the photographs, and by now, now he has lesions which were grouped on his cheek. Of course, he couldn't go see his wife in the post-operative situation because he's now contagious and uh, should be avoiding people whose immune system is suppressed. So unilateral acute oral dental pain with group papulovesicles in the oral cavity should make you think of varicella zoster. This is a plug to have patients vaccinated against zoster. Zostafax is available. It has been studied in persons age 60 and older, so the insurance companies may not want to pay for it for younger people, but the curve for the prevalence of herpes zoster starts rising at 35, and it just goes up at a 90, I mean a 60 degree angle, and for the rest of your life, the angle stays the same. The longer you live, the more likely you are to have shingles, and you can live long enough to have it twice, which is a good reason to get vaccinated against it. So the vaccination reduces the risk by more than 50% and the severity of disease by two-thirds. You've probably seen patients with post-herpetic neuralgia and know how miserable they are. This is highly, highly likely to prevent the development of post-herpetic neuralgia and so is something you should be recommending to your patients. Few contraindications will be in there uh, for you to review, but they're very small. Immunosuppressed patients is the most important one. Another acute oral ulcer is the Coxsackie virus infections, hand, foot, and mouth disease. And this is not veterinary medicine. This is not foot and mouth disease. This is hand, foot, and mouth disease. And this occurs in episodes, sometimes in the spring, sometimes in clusters in a community. Coxsackie virus A16, 5, and 10, a febrile illness with a little runny nose. The child is otherwise very healthy. And then they develop lesions on their hands and feet, and the papulovesicles are present in the oral cavity. The disease is usually fairly self-limited in someone with a competent immune system, and the children recover. But it is a little bit frightening when you see this. With the papulovesicles on the palms, you know this is a viral illness. A papulovesicle with an erythematous halo surrounding it on the palms. And here on the feet. Now, the feet are the feet of my son, Rick. I was a dermatology resident my, at Duke University. My wife was a graduate student at the University of North Carolina. So all of you from that part of the world know that we are in different rooms on basketball nights. But I came home, she goes to school at night, I took over responsibility for our child, and those of you who are parents know when you walk in the door and you hear, your child is sick, you know this, the big transfer is coming. <laughs> so I went back to see Rick in his crib and he was happy kicking his legs, he was a little weintzer, and, uh, but he did have these funny looking things on his hands, so I looked at his feet of course and they were there too and I recognized them as viral, and then I checked his ears, and I checked uh, his neck to see if he had meningitis, and he was just fine, no fever, eating, everything was good. I looked in his mouth, though, and there were a couple of papulovesicles on his soft palate. So I turned to Sue, and I said, Honey, Rick has hand, foot, and mouth disease. She says, You're just making that up, so I'll, <laughs> I'll leave and go to school tonight. Well, fortunately, the chief resident lived across the street, and he confirmed my diagnosis. So. But you know, you're never a prophet in your own land. <clears throat> so hand and foot papulovesicles with uh, lesions of the oral cavity. You're going to look pretty good if you can make this diagnosis, and you're going to look sort of bad compared to the pediatricians who will. So 
know about Coxsackie virus infections. So we've looked then at acute oral ulcers, recurrent, four types, trauma, canker sores, recurrent intraoral herpes simplex virus stomatitis, and something exceedingly rare, cyclic neutropenia. Then we looked at acute oral ulcers, which occurred only for the first time, and worked through these. So now we're going to move on to the most common cause of acute oral ulcers, and those are canker sores. And this part of the lecture is entitled, A Lifetime of Canker Sores, because my entire professional lifetime as a dermatologist has been involved with canker sores. How many of you suffer from canker sores? This is not surprising because the highest prevalence of any group is medical and dental students and healthcare professionals. Well, I was at Duke University, and uh, my professor and chair, Dr. Calloway, uh, was a superb clinician, and I was trying to emulate him. And I was very interested in teaching, and I was looking toward maybe having a career in, in teaching. And he thought I might do well doing that. And his junior, the guy who recruited me to the residency, Dr. Dr. Tyndall, had a project going that uh, might relate to canker sores. So we talked about those a little bit. And I got out of the military and uh, was out of sync with the residency, so they sent me to the research training program at Duke for a few months, and I got excited about that. I finished up my training at Duke, and they said, you need to go to Mayo Clinic and study with Mitch Sams. He's got an NIH training program, and he's interested in immunology, and he can teach you something about that. So off we went from North Carolina to Minnesota, where... Mitch hooked me up with Roy Shorter, who was a pathologist. And he, at that time, was doing some basic research with lymphocytes taken from the blood of patients with inflammatory bowel disease, Crohn's and ulcerative colitis, incubating them with epithelial cells and seeing that the epithelial cells were attacked and killed, maybe having something to do with the pathogenesis of the disease. And so I modeled after him got interested in immunology, and Bob Jordan, a dermatologist, came back from the United States Navy to the staff of Mayo Clinic, and Bob Jordan is really the father of blistering diseases in dermatology and developed the techniques for immunofluorescence, and uh, I learned those from him. Dr. Winkleman gave me my job at Mayo Clinic, recruited me to staff there, and so I owe him uh, that. And a master clinician at Mayo Clinic, Dr. Harold Perry, I emulated him, and he was very interested in blistering diseases and, and encouraged me in my career. So these people were important to me to try to link together dermatology and dentistry. You remember my guilt trip. Oral diseases, teaching, an academic career, immunology, research, working in a laboratory, and then oral medicine and pathology. And so canker sores have been that vehicle for me. In the days of, of my research, we recognized that the histopathologic appearance of canker sores showed an invasive destructive reaction pattern, uh, which uh, was uh, thought to be a delayed hypersensitivity reaction, like a TB skin test turning positive. So here you can see lymphocytes subtending the epithelium, moving from the lamina propria into the epithelium and creating havoc. Here's another view of those uh, lymphocytes, and we wondered if these were the lymphocytes were the perpetrator of developing the canker sore. As indicated, Dr. Sh Shorter had been working with colonic target cells in inflammatory bowel disease, and there was a paper in the New England Journal of Medicine about muscle target cells being attacked by lymphocytes taken from patients with dermatomyositis. And so we looked then for oral target cells in blood cells taken from oral epithelial cells with blood cells taken from patients with canker sores. And the paper in 1974, Lymphocytotoxicity and Recurrent Apthostomatitis with SAMS and Shorter, where we saw that the lymphocyte epithelial cell interactions were made, uh, studied by an assay, baseline, no cytotoxicity, People who had canker sores but were in a remission period had an intermediate degree, and those with active disease in their mucosa had a high degree of cytotoxicity. 
so that the lymphocyte-mediated cytotoxicity might be implicated in the pathogenesis. But if it didn't follow along with a clinical course, it really wouldn't be too relevant. And so here are one of several patients that we followed in a longitudinal fashion over a period of weeks, the light blue shaded areas when they had disease activity, and you see their cytotoxicity went up and then down when they went into remission. So it follows then with disease activity. So lymphocyte-mediated cytotoxicity with what has been found to be CD4 T cells is important in the development of canker sores. So canker sores, common condition. A canker sore can distort even the most classic smile. Hippocrates knew about canker sores. It was in his ancient Greek writings about medicine. Certainly William Shakespeare knew about canker sores because in Winter's Tale, Paulina says, if I proved honey-mouthed, let my tongue blister. That means if I'm telling a lie, let my tongue blister. And Juliet said to nurse in Romeo and Juliet, blistered be thy tongue for such a wish. So here's a modern-day Shakespearean character, perhaps Hamlet or Macbeth, with a very large canker sore on their tongue. One of the lessons I want you to learn today is that the lesions of aphthostomatitis or canker sores are simply the manifestation in the mucosal surface of a variety of different diseases. The oral mucosa has only so many ways to react, just like the skin, and when a lesion occurs that ulcerates, it, it's pulled just a little bit into an oval situation, just like a hole you find after a punch biopsy. It moves into an oval, it's usually surrounded by an erythematous halo vasodilatation and covered finally by a fibromembranous slough, and then the pain goes away because the nerve endings are covered. So let's classify canker sores. Two ways to classify canker sores. One is based on a course of disease, simple versus complex. And the second is based on morphology. In dermatology, we're very good about morphology, so we'll talk about how we classify them and why would we do this anyway. So simple apthosis is a term that I coined uh, some time ago to talk about the average garden variety patient with canker sores, one, two, three, four lesions, one, two, three, four times a year, lasting a few days, going away, long periods of remission, and that's the vast majority of sufferers have simple apthosis. And that's 20 to 50 percent of the patient between the ages of 5 and 25 will have lesions here in the sulcus oval Complex apthosis is a term coined by Joe Urizzo, who will be speaking to you later during this meeting. And he used this word to, to describe patients he was seeing with oral canker sores really bad and sometimes genital canker sores and really worried about their overall general health. And when he worked them up, he could not make a diagnosis of Bechet's disease, which is oral canker sores, genital canker sores, and ocular inflammation like uveitis or retinitis or iritis. So he called them complex apthosis. And they're a subset of patients, but they have really bad canker sores. You can see them on the labial mucosa. They rarely affect the vermilion of the lip, only the labial mucosa, the tongue, the soft oral tissues, and occasionally the genitalia, you can see lesions here on the scrotum or in the female vulva. Typical sites of oral and genital apthosis occurring together in the context of complex apthosis. So simple, very common, complex, rare, but troublesome. And now classifying them based on morphology. Three types, minor, they're small, less than a centimeter in diameter, and they are the majority. 80-85% of canker sores are small. Major, big, greater than a centimeter in diameter, tend to be anterior, but can be posterior. They're deep and they may heal with scarring. And then herpetiform, using that word as an adjective, not meaning a virus. Herpetiform means grouped. Herpes simplex means virus. So herpes means grouped. 
But herpetiform is a word we use like dermatitis herpetiformis, impetigo herpetiformis. So there are herpetiform ulcers in the mouth, and there are only about 5% of patients. So here's patients with minor aphthous ulcers, two who have met and become confluent. Here is the first patient described with major aphthous ulcers, and this was described by the American dermatologist Sutton in the late 1800s. And he, like all dermatologists, would name their disease by four Latin names, periodontitis mucosa necrotica recurrens. So we would all have to either remember that or call them Sutton's ulcers. But now they're major aphthous ulcers, so Dr. Sutton got foiled. Here's a modern-day patient with major aphthous ulcers. You can see the right labial mucosa, very large lesion, will take weeks to heal, and the scar on the left labial mucosa from a previous lesion. When that patient finds out that you can stop the development of a major aphthous ulcer with a tiny drop of intralesional corticosteroids, they'll be calling your office for an appointment when they think they're going to have one. Large major aphthous ulcers, about 10 to 15% of patients. This is the paper describing herpetiform ulcers, a terrible picture. Here they are, and you can see why they're called herpetiform, because you can see group lesions at the commissure on the labial mucosa in the same patient at the same time, multiple sites scattered here, two or three sites on the lateral board of the tongue, and some in the posterior buccal mucosa. So the elemental lesion is a one to two millimeter papulovesicle grouped. They may become confluent, and there are many different spots occurring in patients with herpetiform ulcers. So minor, very most common, major, 10 or 15%, herpetiform, only about 1 in 20 or 5% of patients. So your lessons, that apthosis is a multifactorial disease, that the lesions of canker sores are the mucosal manifestations of a variety of different conditions. That canker sores is not a disease that stands alone. It is not a disease sui generis, but a reactive pattern. And so our job is to classify it and then pull it apart and find out what may be driving this process. Here are some associated diseases. Ulcus vulvi acutum, apthostomatitis et vulvitis, complex apthosis, Moving on through others, which we'll talk about in a minute, but let's first look at this group of acute ulcers and also involving the vulva. Here's a patient who was admitted to the Rochester Methodist Hospital in Minnesota before we wore gloves on a regular basis in the 70s with oral ulcers, canker sores, and a very large, extremely painful, giant vulvar ulcer. An acute very painful vulvar ulcer. This is a reactive process that occurs in people who have the proclivity to develop apthosis, and it can occur after a GI infection, like a Yersinia gastroenteritis, a viral gastroenteritis in the old days after tuberculous enterocolitis, typhoid fever, typhus, other gastrointestinal diseases, but also after influenza, after other viral diseases, these patients will blow up with oral and genital ulcers, acute uh, ulcers of the vulva, very painful. They do not have a sexually transmitted disease. They will usually be worked up for such. You will usually see them already on acyclovir, having been seen by an urgent care primary situation. But recognize ulcus vulvi acutum, acute vulvar ulcers and oral ulcers in young women, and uh, they will go away. Here's oral and genital apathy in complex apthosis. Now the mouth is the beginning of the gastrointestinal tract. So patients with inflammatory bowel disease or sprue, gluten sensitive enteropathy can have oral ulcers. Here we see patients on the labial uh, ulcers on the labial mucosa, the undersurface of the tongue, a large lesion on the buccal mucosa. Here's a patient with sprue with lesions on the labial mucosa. Now, how often does this happen? These are a series of studies performed some time ago. Maybe about as many as 4% of patients with celiac, sprue, gluten-sensitive enteropathy will have oral ulcers. Now, natural history. What is the natural history of canker sores? 
Knowing the morphology helps you here because minor aphthous ulcers and herpetiform type ulcers tend to go into remission and so the patient suffers intermittently for over a few years but then the disease becomes less intense and begins to go away. However, if you have the big ones, the major aphthous ulcers, they tend to be persistent on and on and on. So knowing morphology helps you with prognosis. Every lesion of canker sores heals. They never become persistent chronic ulcers. That would be another condition. So that each lesion begins, perhaps the patient knows it's going to happen, nothing can be seen, then a macule, papule, papulovesicle, ulcer, fibromembranous slough, pain diminishes immediately, and the patient then goes on to heal the individual lesion of a canker sore. So we've talked about the classification and the natural history. Let's look then at the group of patients who have complex apthosis. This is the second of two subsets, simple and complex. Simple is the vast majority of patients, complex a small portion of all patients. But let's drill down on them. And these are Mayo patients that I saw personally who had ulcerations half the time or continuous oral ulceration. That means new ones come as old ones heal, but everything eventually goes away, each individual lesion, but not the process. Oral and genital apathy or major disability. And we'll talk about 244 of these patients that I saw. And we looked for possible causes because canker sores are a mucosal manifestation of a variety of different diseases. How well did they do under, in our hands for treatment? And did they or did they not have Bichette's disease? These did not, but during that same time, 25 patients did have Bichette's disease. So if you have god-awful canker sores and you present in North America, it's a 10 to 1 odds against having Bichette's disease, and it's a 2 to 1 odds in favor of the fact that your patient will come in having read something on the internet about Bichette's disease and be convinced that they have it. 244 patients, two out of three were women. The age range was from 15-month baby to an 81-year-old woman. Commonest age range is 10 to 40. Uh, women and men both had genital lesions in about one in six. Half of our patients began as intermittent canker sores and then moved on to this continuous recurrent oral ulcerations. The other patients began at the very beginning of their disease with a complex pattern. Uh, three out of four had small minor lesions, but two out of ten had large ones and about 4% herpetiform. What did we find as we evaluated these patients? One in four patients had an anemia or a hematinic deficiency, something we can fix. One in six patients had a gastrointestinal disease, something we can help deal with. So there are correctable causes associated with complex apthosis, and our job is to find them. Twelve of these patients felt that they had Bichette's disease or had been told that they had Bichette's disease when they came, and we had to disabuse them of that diagnosis and make them believe or help them believe that they only had complex apthosis, which is bad enough. And four of my patients had recurrent oral erythema multiforme following canker sores. Now you know that you can get fever blisters and that would be followed by oral erythema multiforme in some patients. Well here are patients who get canker sores and that's followed by oral erythema multiforme. Patients don't discriminate between fever blisters which occur on the vermilion of the lip and canker sores which occur on the labial mucosa of the lip and interiorly and they merge them together and so you may need to help them dissect that and find out that they may have both because they're both common diseases of young people. This patient has wall-to-wall -wall disease, no discrete set-in lesions, it's oral Crohn's disease. This is what a gastroenterologist would see with a colonoscopy or with a, a proctoscopy. Pustules on the oral mucosa only occur in one condition, pyostomatitis vegetans, and it's seen as a marker of inflammatory bowel disease. 25 patients with Bichette's disease, 12 with pseudo-Bichette's disease, and four patients with oral erythema multiforme. Notice the hemorrhage of the vermilion 
And that's not a typical place for canker sores. Notice the lesions are large, diffuse, running together, not discrete lesions of canker sores. So how did we do when we treated these patients? We tried to identify deficiencies, treat diseases, and then in those patients for whom we had no good treatment, we tried to treat them with non-steroidal anti-inflammatory agents. We'll come to treatment in more detail. So the lessons we're learning here then about complex apthosis is that it's a multifactorial condition. The lesions of apthosis are the manifestation of a variety of different diseases and conditions. Apthosis can be divided into two subsets, simple and complex. Complex apthosis is an uncommon subset of apthosis. It's a reactive condition associated with many other conditions, including Bichat's disease. Many patients, up to two out of three with complex apthosis, will have a recognizable underlying condition, something we can find and work on. And many of these are amenable to treatment. So we can take a disease which is very, very intense and causing a great deal of disability and reduce it to a very minimal problem for the patient. And our job is to seek correctable causes and associated conditions in these patients. What do we do? We identify and replace any deficiencies. We treat primary skin uh, gut diseases, modify provocative factors, and then treat them with corticosteroids or non-steroidal anti-inflammatory agents. So here are some treatment results, 1998 to 2007. 55 patients, 70% of whom were women. The mean age is 41, so you can see this is out of bounds from the typical age of patients with canker sores. Mean duration, 13 years they've been having trouble with the disease, and 18% had genital lesions along with their oral lesions. All patients are treated with a three-week tapering course of systemic corticosteroids, like you would treat someone with severe acute poison ivy, oak, or sumac dermatitis with a generalized bolus dermatitis. So 40 to 60 milligrams a day, well, this is, uh, the numbers are in your uh, handout. First week, half that the second week, half that the third week, and stop. Now, all patients with canker sores will, have, um, will be much improved after systemic corticosteroids. That's a temporary. It's not a long-term solution to the problem. We're just cleaning up the mess, but it will recur because we're dealing with a chronic uh, disease. So then we need a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory agent to maintain the control that we're going to gain with the systemic corticosteroids. So we begin immediately with colchicine. And the numbers will be in your handout, 0.6 milligrams at night the first week, increasing to two pills a day if they can tolerate it. Many patients have diarrhea with colchicine. And we're using colchicine as a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory agent. Treatment with colchicine over a period of 12 weeks was successful in 30 of 50 patients. 13 of the 50 did not respond, and 7 couldn't tolerate the medicine because of diarrhea. So then we added Dapsone to the colchicine or used Dapsone alone, and we were able to get another 14 of those patients uh, into remission with Dapsone and or colchicine therapy. So good tools, drugs that we can use over the long term without administering potentially uh, cytotoxic and serious drugs. 44 of 50 achieved success with a follow-up, and this has been published in the Archives of Dermatology. So, canker sores is a multifactorial disease. The lesions of apthosis are the result of a variety of condition, and recognizing these subsets allows us to make a better diagnosis and find a course of path for treatment. So, reminding you of classification, simple and complex, minor, major, and herpetiform, we know the natural history that minor and herpetiform may go away over time, but major is going to persist, that each individual lesion will heal over a week or less or maybe two weeks, but new ones may come. So now let's look at the rest of the universe, patients with simple apthosis. 
Therapeutic nihilism has not existed with respect to treatment for canker sores, and a number of theories and treatments uh, have been promulgated by a variety of people. Here's an ad from the family doctor, I mean an ad, a, an article published in the Rochester Post Bulletin, Minnesota newspaper. It's exactly uh, from an article that I wrote, almost verbatim, but it's obviously good stuff, and so I congratulate him. <laughs> and we need to get the information out. Now, one of the ideas that if lymphocytes are causing problems is we should knock those out. So here's somebody who thought if you just dissolved topical uh, azathioprine tablets in the mouth, and then you wouldn't have all that toxicity and you wouldn't have to worry about it, and maybe you could get a good benefit. Well, what they forgot is that azathioprine doesn't work until it passes through the liver and becomes an active moiety. So if you dissolve it in the mouth, it has to go through bloodstream to the liver back to the mouth. So that wasn't such a good idea. There is a subset of patients who will come to you sort of like the mother of a child with cyclic neutropenia and say, you know, I have canker sores, but I only have them in the middle of my menstrual cycle. And you realize oh, they're only occurring at the time around ovulation. Place this person on estrogen-dominated oral contraceptives and their disease will go into remission. This is an estrogen-sensitive group of patients. A number of medications have been used in the hopes of modulating the immune system. Levamisole was the four poor, first poor person's immunomodulator. It was a drug that was taken away from the, or taken from veterinary medicine and it was administered to a large group of people a double-blind placebo-controlled study, and no difference. Same way with tetracycline suspension, no difference in a double-blind placebo-controlled study. Thought maybe the bacteria caused the problem, so they wanted to kill them with mouthwashes. No, really, not much better than the, the placebo. A lot of mast cells in the mucous membranes, maybe if we knocked them down, they'd get better. No much better than the placebo. So, simple apthosis, one, two, three, four episodes, one, two, three, four times a year, a few lesions, oral soft tissues. What can we do here? Well, we can look and see or find out by history what type of lesions we have, and then we know what the natural history will be. Topical corticosteroids might work because these are, after all, T lymphocytes. And so let's look at some of our treatment options. The patient can do something themselves. They can avoid talking while chewing, avoid sharp surfaced foods, use careful oral hygiene not to damage their mucous membranes with a toothbrush by being vigorous with the head of the toothbrush bumping into the buccal mucosa, have the dentist fix any irregular dental surfaces, and then sodium lauryl sulfate containing toothpaste seem to trigger canker sores in some patients. So Rembrandt is a non-SLS containing dentifrice. Trauma. What is the evidence for this? The role of mucosal injury in initiating recurrent apthostomatitis. British Medical Journal, 1981. No human studies committee would permit this now, but 30 patients with canker sores and 15 volunteers injured by suture by penetration with a tenaculum. Anything that's called a tenaculum has got to be bad. And a hypodermic needle and each of six puncture wounds produced was monitored and mechanically induced injury to the oral mucosa can cause ulceration in a much higher prevalence rate in people who are of the apthosis nature. So reduce trauma. Topical fluorinated corticosteroids. Here's an ad for kenalogonorabase. I don't use kenalogonorabase because it's very difficult for patients to apply. The amount in those little tubes is very tiny. I give them a 15 gram tube of Lydex 0.05% gel, and that should last them a long time. But here it shows a canker sore in the first panel. 12 days later, it's gone. It would have been gone anyway. It doesn't prove that topical corticosteroids work, although they do. And so what I would recommend that every one to two hours while awake, if you think you're going to get a canker sore, rub in some Lydex gel to the area and you may abort the development of the canker sore. So that's a tool they can take away, put in their purse or briefcase and treat their lesions when, before they become full blown. If the patient is in the chair of the dentist, they'll use something like Dibacterol. 
stops canker sores in five seconds flat. It's sort of the Bernie Madoff approach to the world. If it's too good to be true, it probably isn't. But this works very nicely, eliminates the pain in five seconds. And anything that's in a brown bottle, you want to be very careful about. Don't drop it. Don't have the shakes when you open it. You know, be really careful. Because if I dropped it on this nice tie, it would burn a hole in it. It's sulfuric acid. This is an escharotic. This is a caustic. This burns the tissue. You have a fiber membranous slough come immediately. Covers the nerve endings. Pain is diminished. If you would like to do something else, you could give them a prescription for viscous lidocaine, ask them to apply with a cotton-tipped applicator to the lesions, the local anesthetic. Don't gargle this stuff, the whole mouth goes numb, but just apply it directly to the lesions and that will be very helpful in reducing the pain of this event. It doesn't change the natural history of the disease. And then many of you learned about a mouthwash, a magic mouthwash, Marion's magic mouthwash, Duke mouthwash, University of North Carolina mouthwash, Mayo mouthwash. Every place I've trained had a different prescription. But they're expensive. And your patient can get the poor person's magic mouthwash by going to the drugstore, picking up a bottle of Benadryl and a bottle of Maalox and mixing the two together shaking it up and you have just what you need. Throwing in tetracycline or corticosteroids or nystatin or anything else just adds to the cost and is really not a very effective way to treat a disease. If you want to treat something, treat it. If it's yeast, treat it for the yeast. So that are some of the things we can do for patients with simple apthosis. Now let's look further at complex apthosis. Again, natural history and the morphology Topical corticosteroids, we've talked about injecting corticosteroids, 5 to 10 milligrams per milliliter. Under a lesion that may be developing into a major amphthous ulcer will probably abort the development of that lesion. We'll talk about antibiotic use, reducing oral trauma, and non-steroidal anti-inflammatory agents. So same thing for these patients. Avoid talking while chewing, sharp surface foods, careful oral hygiene, irregular dental surfaces, and the toothpaste. Systemic therapy. Corticosteroids, colchicine, pentoxifiline, dapsone, thalidomide have all been recommended. For corticosteroids, it's only a short-term relief. It's a bandage for the short term. It is not a long-term treatment program. It will not affect the natural history of the disease. It will give your patient much needed relief. A tapering three-week course is appropriate when you start therapy with a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory agent on the same day. First choice, colchicine. Don't have to do all those blood tests that you have to do for Dapsone. Start here. You have a 60% chance of having a good outcome in 12 weeks, reducing the severity of the disease. And if they don't get diarrhea or have GI side effects, why this is something that could be used then over the long term for suppression of their disease. Pentoxifiline, a drug looking for a disease desperately. <laughs> it's run out of its patent life and it's still looking. Number of patients, papers you can go and find references in small series that this helps patients. So if your patient still doesn't want to take Dapsone or something else, you could try this for 12 weeks, 400 milligrams three times a day. A randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial was carried out, and while there was less pain and smaller and fewer ulcers, it was not statistically significant. Sort of reminds me of the story of using medications. When somebody recommends using XYZ in disease ABC, hurry up and do it before somebody does a, a double-blind placebo-controlled study showing it's of no benefit. We need to make sure we're not missing uh, deficiency, correctable causes. I'm going to move through this. Here's a lady, 80 years of age who has pernicious anemia and has apthosis as part of her pernicious anemia. So do retest patients routinely. I, among others, recommended that. And what did we find? We found that among patients with canker sores, about 7 or 8% were anemic. 
and that when we looked at the deficiencies, and these studies were iron, B12, and folic acid, that 21% of patients were deficient. And then when we replaced their deficiencies, two out of three had a substantial improvement in three months. So continuing the Shakespearean analogy to test or not to test, anemia was present in only 8% of patients with canker sores and 6% of controls, not very compelling. Hematitic deficiencies, however, were present in 20% of patients with canker sores and only 8% of controls, a little more compelling. Now, my best bet is that the spontaneous remission rate in six years is 30%, but the therapeutic response rate is two out of three in three months. So screen your patients with a CBC, iron studies. I also do zinc, B1, 2, 6, and 12, and folic acid. So all the B vitamins and folic acid. And then replace and expect improvement, not in four weeks, maybe beginning to see it, certainly by six to eight weeks, and maximum by three months. Here are a couple of other studies confirming replacement of deficiencies with response to our patients. So the lessons that I have learned in a lifetime of canker sores is that apthosis has an immunological basis. It's a multifactorial disease. The lesions are the representation of a variety of different condition. There are subsets of complex apthosis that give us an opportunity to identify disease and treat it. Simple apthosis is very common. Many of the patients will have a remission. Complex apthosis is rare and disturbing. Classification is helpful in both conditions. This immunological basis gives us a rationale for therapy with systemic corticosteroids, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory agents, topical medications, and we have many more opportunities for treatment. So we're optimistic that better diagnosis and treatment will be available to us in the future. We keep looking for additional people within that complex apthosis subset. We know that we find something in two out of three. We're still too dumb. They're idiopathic. The doctors are too dumb, idiots, don't know the pathology, and we're still looking in that group for other patients. So I want to thank you very much for the opportunity to share with you acute oral ulcers and a lifetime of canker sores, and I'll be delighted to answer any questions you might have, either here or out there. Thank you. patient, she is in her mid-twenties and she gets um, the complex um, aphthous ulcers, ulcers only during her menses. Uh, they totally went away during her pregnancy. After her pregnancy, she had the Mirena IUD and only had her menses once. Her daughter's about eight or nine months old now and when she had her menses, she had another flare. Have you ever heard of that? Well, that was a little opposite of the estrogen-dominated oral contraceptive, but I would be inclined to, to place her if she were, were willing to go on an estrogen-dominated oral contraceptive and see if you could improve the situation after you make sure she's not down on B12 folate iron. She's probably yes. down on iron for sure, and replacing iron may be all that you need to do, but check, check her for those deficiencies okay. and then consider that possibility if you don't find something easier. I just have one second quick yes. question. Um, hand, foot, mouth disease, have you ever found it to be a recurrent disease, someone had the episode twice in their life? I think anything can happen, and it's not supposed to be, but th then we know that not all vaccinations confer lifelong immunity, so yes, you could do that. Okay, thank you. Hi, uh, just wondering if you think there might be a role for low-dose doxycycline, whether it's Oratia or maybe 20 milligrams BID of generic. Um, as an anti-inflammatory agent, uh, as an alternative to colchicine, for instance, or Dapsone systemic? A terrific question, and um, I haven't tried that. That's a very thoughtful approach. Periodontal disease, uh, which is uh, inflammation of the gums with then loss of tissue and severe loss of tissue, more than gingivitis. And they've been using that effectively, low-dose tetracycline. As a matter of fact, before we started using it in rosacea, so it may well be a, a nice thing to do. Usually the patients are so 
uh, disabled by the severity of this condition that we haven't done that. But later on, maybe moving from colchicine to something like that right, to replace it, so you, then you don't have to deal with long-term colchicine therapy, would be uh, a delightful thing to try. Hi. Going with you're not a prophet in your own land, I have the most horrible patient, my husband. And he, his are unusual in that he gets about 25, 30 of them at the same time right before he has a cold. And then they last throughout the cold and three, four weeks after and then they're gone and he doesn't have anything. But he always knows he's about to get a cold because he's like, oh, I got the white things in my mouth again. So um, he could be like Alcos vulvi acutum, only his lesions are oral and that they're a premonition of or associated with a viral illness. So, and I don't, you can't vaccinate him against upper respiratory infections, but I would check him and make sure if All he's, how many times a year does this happen to him? But, well, as often as he gets a cold, three or four times a year. Okay, well, that's, that's a lot. So if they last, if they last him three weeks, uh, that's 12 weeks, that's one-fourth of the yeah. year. That's, that's tough duty. Yeah. So I might check him out for those associations, but I don't know how to keep him from getting colds except keep him at home. <laughs> Thank you. Um, actually, sorry, we have a oh, long. Oh, nice. no, sorry. I know. I didn't think you saw us over here. We have. Um, or, what do you think about lysine or vitamin C or vitamin E for preventative measures? Very good. Lysine. This is a wonderful story. Lysine is an amino acid, and the herpes simplex virus uses lysine to replicate its DNA. So do all the rest of us. But herpes simplex virus. Some some uh, perverted genius decided that if you, if you fooled the herpes simplex virus by giving it L-lysine, that's LAVO, left-handed lysine. All our amino acids are D, right? Dextro. D-lysine, D all the amino acids, that you could m make the herpes simplex stop replicating. Well then, everything that used lysine would have the wrong hand and the wrong side. And there was a study that showed, oh, maybe a little help with fever blisters, which are so intermittent. And that's how L-lysine got started. And to make the story even worse, if you took the L-lysine and you went to a, a lab and they analyzed it, most of it would be dextrolysine because L-lysine is a very unstable um, monomer of lysine and it will flip back to dextro whenever. So, Now, could lysine have any value? Possibly. Vitamin C, possibly, you know, this Nobel Prize winner got all excited about it and tried to get us to take it. But it's never been proven in big studies that have tried to show a benefit, particularly the uh, common cold. So I'm not putting much credence on those. Thank you. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Do you have any experience in the use of, um, like, caraphate slurries for the treatment of oral ulcerations? And if so... What was your experience? Uh, that's the poor person's one. It's the Malox and the Benadryl. And the Malox sort of fills up the ulcer bed, so you have a fibromembranous slough that you've put there. And that's what a slurry does, a caraphate slurry. It's much more expensive than Malox. So, but that's what it does. It just simply fills in the ulcer, takes the pain down a notch because you have the fibromembranous slough covering the nerve endings. So, you so that's, the, that's the rationale behind it. Do you feel they're pretty much equivalent then in their efficacy? Yes. Okay, good. Um, I had a question about, um, I have a patient that I am concerned might have Bichette's disease, and um, she's had chronic uh, gen and extensive genital ulcerations for about three years now, and she has been worked up by a GI, and, and her GI biopsies and everything has been normal, and she does get intermittent aptus, or it seems, ulcerations in the mouth too. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about in Bichette's how the aptus or the oral ulcerations present and then also how exactly you, what's your best way to diagnose definitively Excellent question and thank you very much. Bichette's disease is a tri-symptom complex. Three, three things. Oral ulcerations, usually dominant, usually first, sort of complex aptosis. Bad ones, many, frequent, new ones coming as old ones go. Genital ulceration, men and women, uh, intermittent, maybe not as frequently as oral ulceration, but still bad and disabling, and they tend to get very large mm -hmm. in the genital area. And ocular inflammation. So you can have oral and genital ulceration. You've only made it to complex aphthosis. 
ocular inflammation is conjunctivitis, retinitis, iritis, and uveitis, and they all threaten the vision. And so you really need a, so three parts of this, or you need something else really uh, reactive and bad going on with oral and genital ulcerations, or oral and uveitis. So um, complex aphthosis is where I leave them until they really got something else going on, erythema nodosum, uh, vascular problems, a variety of other things. So I would make sure that you're not missing low-hanging fruit in this patient and, uh, and then try them on colchicine. Yeah, I just started her on colchicine. I just entered an ophthalmologist, so. Good. Thank you. You're welcome. One more. Yes. A quick question on um, cancer patients who are on oral chemotherapy that have a high incidence of uh, recurrent aphthous ulcers and other mouth sores, as they say in the PI. Uh, treatment of choice for that? This is a, to be expected because they're, they've knocked out their polys, they can't take care of their mouth, they've lost their immunoglobulins and their saliva, and they can't take care of their mouth. So you use these uh, preparations like magic mouthwash. Uh, Benadryl gives a little local anesthesia, the slurry, the malox, or whatever you put in there fills up the ulcer beds and make sure good oral hygiene. You may want to use some hydrogen peroxide mouthwash. That's the bottle that will make you the blonde half and half with water <laughs> is enough. And that will reduce bacteria, yeast, and uh, organisms in the mouth and then await uh, resurfacing and re-epithelializing by the patient. Okay, so just palliative? Palliative, okay. yes. I was just wondering if you have any use for Protopic with any of these patients, or has anybody tried anything with Protopic? Great idea. And uh, we were all, always wondered if TNF-alpha inhibitors would help these patients. And um, it seems to have the obverse reaction. The people who were using uh, drugs like amiquimod on their lips for actinic chylitis were blowing up with canker sores. So this is a bit more complex than it seems, and I have not push the protopic because other cytokine inducers were causing canker sores to be worse. Okay, good. Thank you.